you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me into the book of 2 Thessalonians. We are coming back into this series. We had a couple weeks break, and part of the reason for the break from Thessalonians is often Barry and Andrew will jump into a series, but I'm still trying to find my way through the book and not sure how far we'll get in any given week. And so it's not always easy for them on Monday morning to realize, oh, I've got to preach on such and such a text. So they both... Um, dealt with texts that they had been working through and thinking about and gave them time to prepare. But now we're diving back into um, this series. And we're just at the end of chapter one now. We'll, we'll read a little bit. But a real chunk of chapter one has been dealing with the future. And Paul has been working through the fact that these Thessalonian believers have been wrestling with persecution and affliction. Being a Christian is not always an easy thing. And some of you have experienced that maybe in workplaces that you find yourselves in schools that you attend, um, maybe in your family where you're only the only Christian or one of two Christians. You understand the strain and the stress of that. And sometimes you just long for rest. Well, Paul has been reminding these people that there is coming a future vindication, uh, a future judge um, that will judge the world in righteousness. And so he's been pointing ahead to this day it's called the revelation of Christ. It's the day when Jesus Christ, who we, who we have come to know as our Savior, will be revealed in all of his glory and might. We often think of Jesus as a man, but he is going to come back as God uh, in human flesh. And we will see his might and his glory. It's also called uh, the day of the Lord. It's also called the day of judgment. It's a day, as I say, that is at the end of this age, and it is a sure and certain day. And so Paul has been describing the reality of this day and what will happen on that day as he reminds these people that on that day there are those who do not obey God, who do not know God, and they will be forever cast into eternal ruin away from the presence of God and the power of his might. But there, there will also be those who know God and who have come to trust him and come to believe in the gospel, and they will be glorified with Christ, and they will spend eternity with God. And so he's been putting that future day ahead of us. And what he wants to do now is he comes back and um, kind of gets us back on earth. He wants to describe then how we live in light of that future reality. I think we all know to one degree or another that the future does impact our present. Things that we know are in the future have an impact on how we live in the present. So for example, there are uh, those of you that are getting ready to go back to school in just three or four weeks. It might be um, uh, elementary school, it might be high school, it might be um, uh, university, but even that future event is having some impact on you now. You're kind of maybe getting a little bit of nervous or you're wishing the summer would end or you're starting to buy your school supplies or you're starting to pick your courses or you're, you've got some new clothes or those sorts of things. But even that sort of minor future event three or four weeks ago has an impact on how you are living now and how you are thinking. Others of you and some are already there, but retirement is a, is a pretty big day that many set their sights on. And so for retirement, people set aside a certain amount of money that they put into RSPs or they put into other investments, and their present life is determined to some extent by their future reality that they hope will come. So how they spend their money, what they do with their money now, how you, where you put it, um, is all done because you're looking forward to that future event of retirement. And so the future does impact how we live in the present. 
And so Paul is now dealing with that in spiritual terms. And as I say, he has put this future event of the coming of the Lord before them. And he's saying, now in light of that, this is how I pray for you and this is how you ought to live. So I want to read from verse five to the end of chapter one. And it'll give us just a little bit of a sense of, of, of the future that Paul is talking about and then how he brings it back to our present. He says, this is evidence. This is their affliction and their suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus returns. That's the future event. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God, on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's the future. And then he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of, God, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that we can spend a little bit of time now in your word. I pray that we would let this word dwell in us richly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This future event is connected to present realities. And Paul begins to pray for them. And he says to them very clearly, to this end or with this in view, as we start verse 11. Again, what he's saying, he says, because that future is coming, with that in view, we pray for you. And this is how we pray for you. And it's helpful for us to sometimes mimic or imitate how the apostle prays for the congregation and use that for a guide to how we pray for our families or how we pray for the church or how we pray for our spouses. And so Paul says, again, in light of this future judgment that is coming, this day of the Lord, this is how I pray for you. And he says, we pray with this in view. We pray that, you, that God may make you worthy of his calling. I don't know if you have worked through your calling. If you are a Christian today, if you are a follower of Jesus, it didn't just happen. God called you. He spoke to you through the gospel. He tugged on your heart. He got your attention. He woke you up from the darkness that you were in. He sort of called to you while you were lost and he brought you out of a certain situation into another situation. I don't know if you reflect on the calling of God much in your life. I, I think it's something that we should think about quite often. And Paul seems to say here that it's really important in the light of that coming event that we understand more of, we grasp to a greater degree, we, um, we wrap our heads a little bit around this calling of God that has come to us that God will make us worthy of living up to. And while he's talking about this, he's not um, thinking about a, a sort of a, a life that we've been called to that is health and wealth and all wonderful. 
He's talking that we might conduct ourselves or live in a certain way that matches up to what God has called us from and what God has called us into. The initial call of God is something that we have all heard. He calls us to salvation. We're in darkness. We're in sin. We're living our own life. We have no regard for him. We don't really care for him. And all of a sudden, we hear the gospel. All of a sudden, we hear about the fact that we're sinners and we're convicted. We say, well, I'm a sinner. And, and God puts before us Christ. And we realize that Christ is the answer to our sin, that Christ is the one that we need, that Christ is what frees us. And so God attaches that call that we see of Christ and he calls us out of darkness into his light. And this is, I think, the first thing to think about or work through about this call of God. It's a call from darkness into light. We're not, just, we're not talking here physical darkness, right? Most of us have, have been called as Christians, not in a dark room or in a dark building somewhere. He's talking about a spiritual darkness. He's talking about a moral darkness here. And the Bible says every single one of us, when we are initially born, as we begin to live in this world, we are darkness itself. We live in darkness. In other words, we, we live in, in, at odds against God. We live as enemies against God. We, we live in our sin. We, in fact, enjoy our sin. We are, uh, there's a certain lifestyle that we embrace. There's a certain way of thinking that, that, that guides and directs our steps. And all of a sudden, it's like, like God calls us, we hear him calling us, and we realize that we're in real trouble. And it says that God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't know if you reflect on that very often, the, what God calls you from and what God calls you into. God calls you from this situation of absolute chaos, darkness, desperateness, and certain eternal separation from God. And he calls you into mar the marvelous light of his son, Jesus Christ. He calls you into a life of hope. He calls you into a life of forgiveness. He calls you into a life of joy. He calls you into life with a future. He calls you into a, a life that is bound up in Jesus Christ. He calls you into a life that looks forward to an eternity spent in the new heaven and the new earth with him and all the other saints and with Jesus Christ. It's this amazing call that God brings to us that brings us out of darkness into light. But it's also described in another way. When Paul, the apostle, is um, called by God to go into the known world then and to share the good news of the gospel with uh, the Jews and with the Gentiles, it says that he sends him to call them to turn from darkness to light. So there's that, that comparison again. We're called from darkness and we're brought into light. But then he says this, to deliver them from the power of Satan to God. The call of God is this incredible transfer from one kingdom into another kingdom, from one authority into another authority. There are only two main kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. There are only two um, really masters in this world. There is either Satan, where Jesus says, your father is Satan, or your father is God. There are no third or fourth or fifth alternatives. Ultimately, all loyalties go back to those two settings, the power of Satan or the power of God, the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. Do you reflect on that, that when God calls you, he calls you 
from the authority and the power of one who wants your harm only, who wants your hurt only, who wants your destruction only, who doesn't care about your well-being, who offers you no hope, who offers you no future, who only wants to hurt you and abuse you because he doesn't like the Father who created him or God who created him. And God calls you from that realm, from that kingdom, from that abusive sort of world, and he brings you into his wonderful world of love and peace and righteousness and hope and forgiveness and mercy and grace. It's this incredible transfer that takes place. And all of that is the result of the call of God. And so as Paul thinks about this future reality, and as he's thinking about the judgment to come, he wants to the, these people, as he brings them back to earth, to, to, to remember what it is that God has called them from and where it is that God has called them to. He wants, them to, he wants God to work in them in such a way that as they walk in this world waiting for that future day, they will walk in a manner worthy of that calling that they have received, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the God that has called them. And how does God call us? He calls us through the gospel. He calls us through the preaching of his word. We're, we're going to come to a text which I think is one of the most beautiful texts, the most succinct descriptions of salvation in all of the Bible in two or three weeks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Where there, um, Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. This is why the gospel matters. This is why you talk about the gospel at home with your kids. This is why you talk about the gospel when your grandchildren come and visit. This is why you make the gathering of God's people a priority in your life. This is why you share the gospel verbally with your spouse. This is why we as a church support missions and those who go around the world with the gospel, the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we have daycare or, 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 or um, the, the weeks that we're gonna have in this coming week. This is why we believe in evangelism because it is through the gospel, through the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that the call of God is heard and that as people hear about their sins and they're devastated by the destruction that awaits them in and of themselves, by themselves, and all of a sudden they hear about Jesus Christ and God helps them see that Jesus Christ is their salvation, that Jesus Christ is their hope. And as they hear the gospel, they look to Jesus and they say, save me, Christ. This is why the gospel matters. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is a wonderful reality. This is why we are to be convinced of the gospel. This is why we speak the gospel because the call of God comes through the gospel to us. I was trying to put this in some sort of illustration. I'm not good at illustrations or analogies. But I was thinking of this in, in the context of um, a lot of you are involved in sports of some kind. And if you are, you, you sort of maybe look to um, professional sports, whether it's basketball or baseball or soccer over in England or hockey. 
And at the beginning of one's career in all of this, there's a whole whack of, of people that have prepared and spent years of their life hoping that they will get drafted. They're hoping that they will get a call, so to speak, from a team to come and be a player on that particular team. And their hope is that when they get onto that team, that it will be a good enough team that they will get the prize for which that sport um, holds out. So I don't know what it, for hockey, it's the Stanley Cup. I don't know what it is for the World Cup or for baseball, but all of these sports have a significant future event through which they're, they, they, they anticipate or they try and get to. So imagine this draft and one of the best players in the world is selected for a team and they're on that team. And about four or five weeks later, maybe two or three months later, when the team is finally gathering for spring training camp or for fall training camp, all of a sudden that player just says, you know what? I'm just going to sit around and wait until we get the Stanley Cup. I'm not going to listen to the coach anymore. You know, I, I, I've, I've eaten carefully for so many years. I've had a disciplined life for so many years. I'm just tired of this kind of life. I'm just going to sit and wait for the Stanley Cup. We would say, really? Like, you're not living up to your call? What a privilege that you have had to be drafted by such and such a team, to play with these other players, to have that coach in your life. And you're just throwing that all away. You're just gonna sit there and hope that you are on a winning team. We'd say how utterly ridiculous and selfish and what a waste of a call. Well, in, in, in a similar kind of way, God has called us not to sit on the bench and to do nothing, not to live a life ignoring him and his people and his word. He's called us and he wants to work with us and he disciplines us and he leads us and he guides us. He's our shepherd as Psalm 23. He says he leads us and guides us in righteousness. As Hebrews 10 says, he disciplines those that he loves. He, he, he helps us get back in the path. He sets a direction for us. He works in our life. He surrounds us with people that will help us and encourage us and pray for us and care for us. And so Paul, as he prays for this people, as they're anticipating this great day, he says, oh, that God would make you worthy of that call, that God would so work in your life and so place people in your life and so set you in a place that, that your, your life and your conduct and the way that you walk would, would be in line with this incredible call that you've received. In other words, it's not sort of, oh, well, I've done that. I've asked Jesus into my heart. Now it doesn't care what I do. No, Paul says, in light of that coming day, I pray that God would make you worthy of that call. And then he adds a couple more things there. He, he prays that not only that God would make them worthy of his calling, but then that they might fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Do you get even just from the general context of this that, that we're not to sit back and do nothing? That Christianity is not a spectator sport. That it's not just, well, I said the sinner's prayer, so now I'm good to go. No, Christianity is, is a call to a relationship and it's a call to a walk and it's a call to a certain way of living and it's a call to a certain way that we conduct ourselves. And Paul puts his finger on two of those uh, the evidence is that, that we, in fact, are, are walking with God and are called by God. And he says, first of all, that God, by his power, would fulfill every resolve in you for good. This is such a, a beautiful statement. What he's saying is that when God has called you and when you've been transformed, the, there's this goodness that is growing inside of you. 
one of the um, fruit of the Spirit is goodness. In another place, Paul prays that he says, I'm satisfied with you that you yourselves are full of goodness. In another place, we read, for the fruit of life in found, or fruit of light is found in all that is good and right. And so what Paul is praying is saying that there would be fruit from that goodness that's inside us. That, that we would be full of desires to do good for others, to be full of good works for others. And he prays that by the, by the power of God that's in us, by the power of God that's in us through Christ Jesus, that that good that is forming in us and shaping in us would flow out of us in kindness and good deeds towards others in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters, in the way that we treat our husband and wife, in the way that we respond to our boss, in the way that we work with our employers, that, that, that every desire for goodness will be fulfilled. That it, they wouldn't just be empty thoughts, but that when God gives us the desire to do something good, that he would also empower us to do that. It's an extraordinary prayer really, isn't it? That God would so work in us that when we have a, 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 a when we want to do something good, He will direct us, enable us, and, and empower us to do that good. It's a wonderful reality of how we are to live, even when we think of it in light of affliction and suffering that these Christians are. We're supposed to pray for our enemies, we're supposed to do good for those who persecute us. Paul prays that the goodness that is in us as we are being created in the image and likeness of God will flow out of us in the good deeds towards others. And then he prays, secondly, that God by his power will fulfill every act prompted by faith. What Paul is praying here is that, that our faith, our saving faith, would be an evident faith. We do sometimes confuse saving faith with serving faith, if I can put it that way. I hope we all understand, and I need to say it again, that no single person is saved by any single work. There is nothing that you can ever do. There is no amount of money that you can ever give. You can't attend church enough times in your life. You can't be born in the right family that in and of itself will bring you into a relationship with God. You can do nothing for salvation. God has done everything for you in Christ. That is the wonder of salvation. That is the level playing field of salvation. You might not feel worthy. You might think that you're the worst sinner in the world. You may be the worst sinner in the world. But God says, look to Christ and you will be saved. Christ has satisfied every requirement of the law. Everything that God asks of us has been fulfilled in Christ. All we do is look to Christ and we are saved. Thank the Lord for that. But the evidence of saving faith is a working faith. It's a faith that acts. It's a faith that that is alive. It's a faith that has life. Paul, in the beginning of this letter to the Thessalonians, he says, I, I thank God for your works of faith. In another place, Paul writes that, these, that, that, that certain Christians showed their faith was working through love. 
that their, their faith in God and their belief in God and the family of God worked itself out, that they loved the children of God, they loved the people of God, and their faith was demonstrating that love in good deeds towards the brothers and sisters in Christ. I was trying to think of ways to sort of illustrate a living faith or a working faith, and there's lots of ways, but I went to Hebrews chapter 11. And I thought, well, here is example after example after example of an active faith or a living faith. For instance, we, we see Abraham. Abraham was called by God. He, he heard the God of, call of God when he was in a pagan land, and he obeyed God, and he came from that land, and he went to Canaan. But he wasn't happy with the land of Canaan. He realized that God had more for him. And so it says that Abraham set his hope on a heavenly home. And that hope, that faith that when he died, God would give him a heavenly home is what determined and guided his living and his steps in his life. He, his faith was active in believing that the promise of God to him of an eternal home was true and real. And that shaped his living. Or we think of Noah. Noah lived in, in just an ungodly generation. And God came to one day and he says, Noah, I'm going to flood this earth one day, which in itself was something that Noah had to believe by faith. And he says, I want you to build an ark. And here are the dimensions of this. Well, Noah could have said, oh, God, you know, I'm, I'm happy just to be in a relationship with you. And you know, I kind of love these people that I'm, I'm with. And oh, that's, that looks like hard work. Nah, I don't want to do that. But he says, no, he believed God and he trusted God and he obeyed God. And his faith that God would do what he promised in sending a flood was evidenced as he built that ark. And every time he cut a new piece of wood, every time he stuck a piece of, of, of pitch between those boards, every time he nailed something together, he was, his faith was active. He was trusting God. He was saying, God, I, I don't know this fully, but you told me to do this. I believe you, and so I will trust you. We think about Noah, or Moses, who was brought up in Egyptian household, and he came a point that he had to make a decision. And he could have lived in a world which was full of pleasure and riches, things that he could see. Or he could trust in God and look ahead to the day when, when God would identify with his people and his people would identify with God. And he turned his back on Egypt and he identified with the people of God and endured the reproaches of Christ. His was a faith that God would, is, had called a people and that he wanted to identify with that people even though it meant suffering, even though it meant a life that was different from the life of Egypt. He had an active faith in God. Faith also believes this. A lot of, a lot of you guys are going to be going back to school, you guys and girls, and you're going to be going into schools where you're going to take biology and you're going to take all kinds of sciences, and you're, you're never going to hear, you'll rarely hear in those classes teachers or professors that believe that God created this world. You'll hear all kinds of, um, uh, of scientific uh, um, discussion on how this world has evolved from uh, billions and billions of years, how it was sort of one little thing that kind of blew up and all the galaxies were formed from that, and all life has come from that. There is no God. There is no meaning to life other than what we find in it through what we can see. The Bible says the life of faith is very different. The Bible tells us that, no, this universe and everything in it was created by the word of God. 
And so as you sit in that classroom and you hear that, you need to listen. But in your heart, you're saying, no, God, I believe. I believe your word. And your word tells us that you are the maker of heaven and earth. Your word tells us that the heaven and the seas and the earth and everything in them and on them and that flies among them has been made by you. I believe that by your word and the power of the word you spoke and they came into being. That's faith at work. That's an active faith. Or it might even be the evidence of God. People sit around and they say, you know, there is no God. God doesn't exist. Like everything we see, that's all that matters. This is a closed universe. And you say, no, no. By faith, I believe in the existence of God. In the beginning, God, I believe that with all of my heart. I live my life with the realization that I see the evidence of God. I believe the evidence of God. I see it in his word. I see it in his world. I see it in Christ. I see it amongst the people of God. I believe God is real and that changes everything. That is an active faith. That is an enduring faith. It shapes the way that you think and therefore the way that you live. Faith believes in the promises of God. There's so many promises of God in scripture. Do you believe them? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again? Well, if you do, that shapes the way that you live. It shapes the way that you think. It shapes your conduct. There was a promise that God gave to the people of Israel concerning a city called Jericho. Massive walled city. The first city that they faced as they came into the land of Canaan. And God said to them, well, listen, I want you to march around that city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times and then shout and the walls are going to fall down. <laughs> really? But they believed God. Day one, marched around the wall. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, seven times around the wall. And then they shouted. And those walls disintegrated before their eyes. That was an active faith. That was a living faith. And this is what Paul prays. This is what I pray for you. This is what I hope you pray for one another. That God would give us an active faith, a living faith, a, a faith that shapes the way that we live, a faith that shapes the way that we think. And that by God's power, we would believe the things that he tells us. We would see with eyes of faith the reality of what God is sharing us and telling us. This is how we live in the present as we wait for that future day. We don't sit back and say, well, I'm in, I'm good. Paul says, no. Oh, that we might live, that God might work in us in such a way that our lives would be worthy of the calling that we have received. That, that, that by his power, goodness would flow out of us and our responses to people and circumstances around us. That our faith would be a living, vital um, vibrant faith, the faith that works. And then notice all of that, he says, so that. The purpose of all is praying that we would live lives worthy of God and that, that goodness would flow from us and that our faith would be active. Why? So that Christ would be glorified and you in Christ, which takes us back to the future. When Christ comes back, he will be glorified and we will be glorified in him. That all of this will rebound back to God and we will just be in awe and wonder at the power of God and the work of God and the name of Christ that is, that is proclaimed and that will be proclaimed on that day that all of a sudden we will say, yes, Christ is real. Yes, salvation changes us. Yes, it transforms us. There would be this amazing realization that as we get to that point, 
that Christ is glorified and we're glorified in him. And he says that all of this is according to grace. Verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is mercy, loved ones. It's amazing to work this through and, and think this through. That God is so generous. That God is so good. That God is so loving that he pours out in us and through us participation with him, growth in him, transformation in him. That he uses our works, that he uses our faith to bring about incredible things and to see incredible growth in us. And all of it is simply because God loves us. Because he rejoices in us. Because he sings over us. Because that's his character and his nature. Oh, God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, it tells us so much. It tells us about the past. It tells us about the future, but it also tells us about the present. And Father, I pray that maybe we would take up the mantle of Paul, so to speak, or that we would follow in the footsteps of Paul and that even for this week or for the coming weeks, or maybe you might just embed it upon a few of us, that as we think about the people of God here, as we think about our family, as we think about our children who know you, that we might pray like Paul for them. That they might, by God's power, live in ever-increasing wonder and awe of the God that has called them. That their desires for goodness would be realized again and again and again because God just wants to bless those desires and see the kingdom of God grow through the goodness that flows out of his people. And Father, that more and more we would be men and women, boys and girls of incredible faith, that, that our, our faith would grow and strengthen and increase and Father, if, if a faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain, what would, uh, what would the faith of, I don't know, the largest seed produce in us? Father, that we would see the fruit of our faith and that our faith would be something that constrains us and guides us and directs us. And Father, in the end of the day, it's not so that we might get any praise or that we might get any glory, but that we might just be lost in awe and wonder of Christ who enables us to do all of these things. Oh, Father, I pray that you will make this week a wonderful week for your people as we walk in your ways and walk by your power. And I pray, Father, that you might make this a wonderful week for some that are here today who maybe for the first time hear you calling them out of darkness, the darkness of their sin, the darkness of the rebellion, into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Oh, Father, speak, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.